Today's scripture for us today from God is in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 32. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Gracious Father, we look to you for mercy and grace. For you are full of it. And we know, Lord, that we have all turned away. And it is only by your grace. We thank you for your word and your message that you give to us. To guide us, to teach us. To show us a better way. Bless us now as we hear this message. Help us to understand and to know how to follow you, how to love you. It's in your grace and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, let's take a seat together and open up to the passage that Paul just read. All right, sobering passage, a lot to cover today. I want to get into it this morning. Uh, our series is entitled Holy and Holy, and we're looking at Romans, uh, this book that describes our uh, righteousness that comes only by faith, and that's a good thing to be reminded of as we look at some difficult topics today. In Psalm chapter 8 in the Old Testament, there's a passage where the psalmist talks about man being a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8, verse 5. And scholars for centuries have debated about what does that mean, that you know the position of man is below the angels, the position of man conceivably is somewhere between the angels and the beasts. Because angels, here's why they say that, because angels are spirits without bodies. Animals are bodies without spirits. So therefore, man is somewhere in between angels and beasts because he has both, she has both a body and a spirit. Well, R. Ken Hughes, paraphrasing the great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, he says this, it has always been man's prerogative to move upward toward the spiritual or downward toward the animal. And we become like that upon which we focus. That is why we cannot sin just a little bit. All sin moves us downhill individually, nationally, culturally. Romans chapter 1, the end of this chapter, is about sinning downhill, okay? It's all about humanity taking its little canoe and paddling it over a waterfall. Romans 1, and, and, and the language here is God giving them over to that. Let's just look at this for a second. Romans 1, verse 24, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart. He gave them up. Take your little canoe and paddle over the waterfall. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, verse 26. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. And one commentator I read this last week says it's not just that God releases the canoe. It's like he gives us a push downstream to go over the waterfall. And all of this is a part of God's wrath. It's like God says part of his wrath is, all right, you want your sin? You can have it. You know, choose to sin, choose to suffer. Go for it. 
That's an aspect of the, the, the present wrath of God that's being revealed on our world. Remember that verse from last week that I think is controlling our passage for today. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They try to keep it down. We were trying to work through this this last week in our small group on Thursday. What does that mean, that this wrath of God thing that's being revealed? Is it like God just releases us to do what we want to do? Or is it that God gives us maybe a little push in the direction of our own, uh, our own devices that destroy us? I think some combination of that is right. He lets us self-destruct and embrace our worst in vices, our, our worst vices. Remember the Oscar Wilde quote from last week. I think this is <laughs> insightful. When the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. When God wants to punish us, he gives us what we really, really want. And it's not him. We want our sinfulness. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, lost people enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. That's actually the way that Lewis describes hell. Hell is God giving us over to that which we want most, and it's not him. It's separation from God. And that's Romans 1, 26 through 32 right there, our passage for today. God says, you want sin? You want evil? You want to live like beasts? You can have it. And, and, you know, take your canoe, go, do what you need to do. And, and maybe as God pushes our canoe down the waterfall, maybe, just maybe, that will expedite repentance. And we will turn from our sin and embrace Christ for our righteousness and our salvation. That's really the goal. That's really what Paul is getting at in Romans 1 through 3. Our message today is entitled The Depths of Human Depravity. And, and I'll just warn you ahead of time, this will not be a fun message. If you came to church for a fun message, you came on the wrong day. This is a tough message. And my prayer this whole week has been that, you know, this message, although not fun, will be meaningful and that God would encourage us even afresh from what we're going to look at today that we would fall upon the mercy of God for, for ourselves, for our family members, for our country. I've also prayed that God would give me the grace and the courage to address some, some controversial issues in our world today. And what I'm going to discuss this morning requires a deft touch. And I've prayed for that. Most of us here this morning have loved ones, have family, have friends who are knee-deep in the sin that we're going to address this morning. And we are required before God. Is everybody listening? We are required before God to love them and share the gospel with them, but never to condone the sin. All right? As a Christian, you need to learn how to walk and chew gum at the same time. All right? You need to know how to love the sinner and hate the sin. And if you don't know how to do that, you better learn how to do that. Because that's what we call the Christian life. This is what we do. If you haven't figured it out, you need to figure it out in our world. So here's the outline for today. You can go ahead and write these down in your notes. I'll give you three points. They're all framed this way. Paul's giving us in Romans 1, 26 through 32. I'm calling this further evidence of God's wrath in our world and our need for righteousness of God by faith. Forgive me for the wordiness of that. I, I tried to take parts of that out, but I just couldn't. Every single word in that framing is important for what I'm going to say today. Further, what we're going to look at today is further evidence of God's wrath in our world and our need for a righteousness of God by faith. And further evidence, speaking of further evidence, write this down as number one, dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. I say further evidence, here's why, because we've already been given ample evidence in Romans of God's wrath in our world and our need for righteousness of God by faith. We've already been given that in verses 18 through 25. I already preached that sermon last week. Paul talked already about idolatry and sexual immorality within the Gentile world, which makes righteousness without Christ impossible. 
And, you know, we already talked about the wrath of God being poured out on our world because people have exchanged the glory of God for idolatry, verse 23. People have exchanged the truth of God for a, for a lie, verse 25. God turns them over to their sexual sin and their idolatry. God says you can have it. And, you know, if Paul, if Paul stopped his argument at verse 25, I mean, there's, there's an amen there. I mean, that'd be great. We, we could move on and, you know, the argument is made. Humans are sinful. God is awesome. We need a savior. Check, Paul, we get it. Okay, you can stop there. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at verse 25. He's got more to say about human depravity. And I think this is what he's getting at here in these verses, how it spirals downward to even worse and worse expressions of depravity as we reject God. So Paul says, I'm not done yet. I got more to say about this. Verse 26, for this reason, see that in your Bibles, follow along with me. Verse 26, for this reason, you might say, for what reason? Well, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For that reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He, he pushed the canoe to the waterfall for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. What are we talking about here? What are we talking about? We're talking about what in our context is called lesbianism. We're talking about homosexuality. This is something that Paul calls dishonorable. This is something that Paul talks about as a present revealing of God's wrath. There's another word for this. Let me not mince words. It's sin. He's talking about the sin of homosexuality. In this case, Paul starts with female homosexuality. I'm not sure why. This is actually a rare instance in the ancient world of female homosexuality. And some people have, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure why Paul starts with this, but some people have conjectured that, you know, when, when the women go in society, that's when you know that a society is really corrupt. Because the women are often viewed in societies as like, you know, the, the last stand, the men, the men go after sin quickly. But if the women start to go of it, go after it, then, then you got a, you got a real issue in that society. You know, all the mores of the culture have been, are falling apart and they've left that which is natural for that, which is unnatural. Paul says, maybe that's right. Maybe that's not, I, I don't know. But look at verse 27. Paul doesn't mention men initially, but he, he gets to it eventually. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Actually, perversion is a better translation of the Greek word here, plane. So, so what do we got here? We got more sin. We have homosexuality with women, verse 26, and we have, we've got homosexuality with men in verse 27. And actually the Greek words that Paul uses here are more literally not men and women, but male and female. And, and I think that's important because that harks back to the creation account in Genesis 1, 27, where God created them distinctly male and female. I think Paul is harking back. I think he's echoing that. You were created male and female. There was a distinctness to the way in which you were created to be brought together in marriage, to be brought together in, in sex. That's that passage as well, Genesis 1, where Paul uh, Moses, speaking for God, talks about how men and women both, male and female both, are endowed by their creator with, with dignity and with honor. Both of them, both of them are made in the image of God. The imago Dei is inside of them. They were, men and women both, they were and they are image bearers. They represent God. But they were distinct in gender, male and female. And they were distinct for a reason, so that their distinctness could be leveraged for marriage and for procreation. Man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They biologically were created by God to procreate. Man produces the sperm. The woman produces the egg. They have sex. They create life together. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. God created it that way. And Paul says in Romans 1, all of that beauty has been distorted. All of that beauty has been compromised. All of that beauty has been obliterated by homosexuality. 
Man seeks man sexually. And woman seeks woman sexually. Paul says, Romans 1, in dishonorable passions. Robert Mounds commenting on this verse, he says astutely, he says, the sexual drive itself is wholesome and good. It is. Young people in this room, I want you all to hear that. It is good. God created it as something good. It's God's way of providing both pleasure and progeny. What's progeny, Pastor Tony? Kids. We got a lot of progeny here at Harvest Decatur. God created it this way, and it's good. Robert Mount says, when directed towards a person of the same sex, though, this, this sexual drive It abandons its God-given purpose and becomes a degrading passion. By the way, you guys know this, it's biologically impossible to produce progeny in a homosexual relationship. That is not insignificant. You know, I I have friends, like many of you have friends, friends from high school, friends from college, friends now even, who who live a homosexual lifestyle. I have a a friend um, who you know, came out as gay after I knew her in high school. She's now married to another woman, and she's given birth to two children. Those children are being raised by this this lesbian couple. And I, I just want to be clear about what's going on there. Those children were conceived with some very creative biological maneuvering. They had to circumvent, this couple, they had to circumvent their own sexual relationship to make that happen. And it defies God's intent for marriage and for the family. I've heard about some research recently that there's really no such thing as parenting. There's mothering and there's fathering. And to combine them is, I mean, they're so distinct, you might as well just keep them distinct. There's mothering and there's fathering, and God's intent is that a mother and a father would be brought into a family relationship, raising kids. Kids need a mom, kids need a dad. That's God's intent. And I know, I know what I'm saying right now is really unpopular in our world today. I know it. And I, I know it's popular maybe in some churches and some Christian circles to ignore or marginalize what the Bible clearly prohibits and that's homosexual relationships. And some, you know, some scholars, if I can put that in quotes, Some scholars try to do like, you know, hermeneutical gymnastics to try to get around the obvious that God doesn't allow for homosexual relationships or homosexuals in marriage. Here's some hermeneutical gymnastics. Some people will say that what Paul is describing here, this sin, it's not homosexuality per se, but heterosexuals pursuing homosexuality or homosexuals pursuing a heterosexual relationship against their own nature. That's the sin. Others will say that the sin that Paul's condemning here is, you know, the practice of pederasty. Sexual relationships between older men, young boys, that's, that's what's being condemned here. But how does that square with Paul's statement about men with men and women with women? And also, what about the clear allusions to Genesis 1 and the command God gives to procreate? I'm sorry, but that just doesn't work. I mean, that's not interpretationally possible. Others will say that Paul condemns, what he's condemning here is promiscuous homosexual behavior. But, you know, now we've got that problem solved because we've got gay marriage. We've got same-sex commitments. But again, how does that square with God's provision of sex for both pleasure and progeny? How does that square with the numerous other passages in the Bible that forbid same-sex relationships? I'm sorry, but that just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And you know, Paul, I don't think Paul would have differentiated between monogamous homosexual relationships and promiscuous homosexual relationships. They both would have been considered sinful in his mind. Honestly, you know, you know what Paul would have called the legalization of same-sex marriage? I'll tell you what he would call it. He would call it the condoning of evil. He talks about it in verse 32. Though they knew God's righteous decree, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Not only is same-sex marriage an affront to the God of the universe, it's also an assault on human flourishing. There's more that I could say about that. The way that God created society, the way that God created marriage and sex in the family is for a father and a mother to raise children. 
It's a mockery of God's good institution of marriage and family to say that, you know, that good plan can be supplanted or replaced by a same-sex relationship. The prophet Isaiah speaks to this. The prophet Isaiah condemns our country. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. That's us. And by the way, just so you know, homosexuality is not a new thing in our world. You might say, well, you know, this is kind of a new thing. It's, it's not. Homosexuality is as old as time. It's as old as Sodom and Gomorrah. It goes back to the earliest pages of the, of the Old Testament. And Rome, Rome was a place, you know, where Paul's writing here that, I mean, homosexual practice was commonplace. It was commonplace in the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world. I'll give you some evidence to that, uh, to that fact. New Testament scholar Craig Keener writing on this topic. This is on the screen. You can read this. He said, Greek men were commonly bisexual. Not only was homosexual behavior approved, some writers, like speakers in Plato's symposium, preferred it, homosexual behavior, to heterosexual behavior. But elements of culture socialized boys in that direction. Men and women were segregated growing up and made bonds that became close, apparently due to a deficiency in the number of women, which many attribute to female infanticide. Marriages were often made between 30-year-old men and 14-year-old women, whom the men saw as children. Men had access to only three forms of sexual release until such late marriages, slaves, prostitutes, and other men. Robert Mounts says similarly, in this section, Paul describes the practice of shameful, practice of homosexuality, describes it as shameful, unnatural, indecent, and as a perversion, By contrast, the Greco-Roman society of Paul's day tolerated homosexuality with considerable ease. Among some advocates, it was viewed as superior to heterosexuality. Barclay notes that 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. It was said of Julius Caesar, for example, you know Julius Caesar, the famous Julius Caesar, it was said of him that he was every woman's man and every man's woman. Now, in contrast to that, that's the Greco-Roman world. That's the world that Paul's writing to in Rome. In contrast to that, you have the Jewish world. And in the Jewish world, homosexuality was always viewed as something degrading and something sinful. A few years ago, I preached a sermon, 10 Reasons Homosexuality is Incompatible with Christianity. And I talked in there a lot about the, the Old Testament and how it's condemned in the Old Testament and how that's not true just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. It was clear in a Jewish context that same-sex attraction, homosexual practice was sinful. And some, some people will say this, and you'll hear this if you argue for this or if you try to, try to defend what the Scripture says about this. Some people will say, well, you know what, Tony? Jesus never talked about homosexuality. And that's partially true. But that's because he didn't need to in his Jewish context. Jesus never said anything about bestiality either. Jesus never said anything about incest either, not directly. Does that mean we're okay to practice it? Of course not. Jesus never said anything about child sacrifice to Molech. Does that mean we could sacrifice our kids to Molech? Of course not. Don't let people play the Jesus didn't said it game. You know, there's some ridiculous argumentation that circulates in our day. And besides all that, Jesus knew the Old Testament. He knew the laws against sin written there. He quoted the Old Testament to the devil over and over again. And he spoke in general terms against sexual immorality. So there's no way that Jesus would ever have supported or endorsed homosexual behavior. And besides that, here's the strongest argument against that line of reasoning, the, you know, Jesus didn't say it argument. Jesus called Paul on the road to Damascus. Remember that? And he gave him a job, and he appointed him as an apostle. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, actually, to inspire Paul to write the book of Romans. All scripture is inspired by God, right? We believe that? And even Jesus said himself in John 16, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to inspire the apostles, people like Paul, to write things like Romans 1. 
So Jesus would read Romans 1 and what Paul's saying here, and he would say, amen, I sent the Holy Spirit so that Paul would write this. I agree with it. You know, it's frustrating to me, people in our day, you know, self-professed Christians, self-professed theologians, they, they try to start wars between Paul and Jesus, like they're at war with each other. And they say, they say things like, I'm a red-letter Christian. I only believe in the red letters that Jesus wrote. Really, that's a surprise to Jesus. Because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to write the other scriptures. And Jesus affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. It's ridiculous to say that, or to, I'm a red-letter Christian, as if that's the only thing that Jesus has to say, is the red letters. Jesus and Paul are not at war with each other. They're in sync, and the Bible is clear about this. The Bible is clear about this. You have to do violence to the Bible to end up somewhere else than this. In fact, Al Mohler, he said it this way on his podcast, The Briefing. He says, there are liberal biblical scholars who are doing their very best to undermine the authority of the scriptures by suggesting that the scriptures never speak precisely to homosexuality. Mohler says, brothers and sisters, if the Bible does not speak precisely to homosexuality, it doesn't speak precisely to anything. And I think he's right. And it's only intellectual dishonesty that would come to the Bible and say the Bible doesn't prohibit homosexuality. You have to be intellectually dishonest to get to that place. So let me be clear about this. Homosexuality is a sin. It is a sin before God. I don't say that with relish. I don't say that with hate in my heart. I don't. It is a sin, and God saves sinners. That's the truth. You have to recognize the sin in order to be saved. You have to recognize your state as a sinner. You're not doing anybody any favors by saying it's not sinful. You might be robbing somebody from the opportunity at repentance and salvation, actually. And if you're here this morning, hear me on this. Hear my heart as your pastor. If you're here this morning, if you're struggling with this, if you're maybe right now in a homosexual lifestyle, if you're listening to this online right now, God loves you and he has grace for you and you can be saved. Nobody is beyond the means of salvation. You can be. A homosexual can be saved. He can, she can. Paul says it elsewhere. I love this passage, 1 Corinthians. This is the don't get cocky verse in the Bible. Okay? If you ever need a verse, feeling kind of proud of yourself, feeling really self-righteous, read this, okay? Paul says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, not by your works, not because you're awesome, but because Jesus is awesome. We just sang about that, didn't we? You were washed, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We really need to move on. This is not a, this is not a message on homosexuality. This is a message on Romans 1, 26-32. And Paul's going to deal with some other stuff here in a second. But, it, but before we move on, I want to I say one more thing. I read recently a, a book by Beckett Cook. I mentioned this already a few weeks back, A Change of Affections. A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. Great book, great book. I encourage all of you to read it. And, you know, I read an interview with Beckett recently, and he was asked, you know, what's been the biggest cost you've incurred in choosing to follow Jesus? And here's what he said. He said, God had a lot of grace on me on the day that he saved me. Oddly enough, I was relieved. I didn't have to date anymore. When you're in that lifestyle you're constantly pressured to date. My friends are always trying to set me up. If you're not in a relationship, people think something's wrong with you. So I was really relieved to not do that anymore. Like I say in the book, all my ex-boyfriends cheated on me, which is common. But in my relationship with Christ, I felt so safe. I didn't have to perform. 
It was such a relief to be in this relationship with Christ, but it, it did cost me some friends, some really deep, lifelong relationships. That was painful, but at the, the time I was so euphoric, I didn't care. The gain is like what Paul said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jackie Hill Perry, she says something similar in her book, Gay Girl, Good God. She says, I know now what I didn't know then. God was not calling me to be straight. He was calling me to himself. The choice to lay aside sin and take hold of holiness was not synonymous with heterosexuality. And my becoming holy as he is, I would not be miraculously made into a woman that didn't like women. I would be made into a woman that loved God more than anything else. Now, some of that, you know, as we read this and you read those testimonies, some of you might be saying, Pastor Tony, I've never had a homosexual thought in my life. Never committed a homosexual sin. I, I, I guess I'm naturally holy, you might say. Not so fast. <laughs> Write this down, number two. Not only are there dishonorable passions, there are also those with a debased mind. Craig Keener, in his comments on this passage, he actually talks about Paul's discussion on homosexuality as a setup. He was setting you up. So if you get all high and mighty and holier than thou and self-righteous, Paul's about to hit you right between the eyes with some other sins. By now, you know, by the way, homosexuality, it wasn't controversial in Paul's day. I mean, everybody, even the Jews knew that it was sinful. But there were other sins out there in the Jewish world included that, that were acceptable sins, you know? These are the acceptable sins. And what Paul's about to say is that even those sins are abhorrent before a righteous God. And they, they are evidence of a debased mind. Paul says this in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, there's that they again. We're still talking about Gentiles. We're still talking about those who reject the truth of God for a lie, who reject God as creator, reject God as savior. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He pushed them over the waterfall in their canoe as well. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Anybody ever been guilty of those sins in the room? Anybody ever had malice in their heart towards another person? Anybody ever have unrighteousness? Adakia, remember that word from last week? Anybody ever coveted your neighbor's house? Coveted your neighbor's yard? Coveted your neighbor's 1965 Mustang GT convertible. <laughs> I have. I was coveting one of our elders, uh, I won't say his name, his motorcycle the other day. <laughs> I can't drive a motorcycle. My wife won't let me. Paul keeps going in verse 29. They are full of envy. They are full of murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Pastor Tony, I never murdered anybody. I never pulled the trigger, never killed somebody in cold blood. Good, good. I'm glad. That makes me happy. I'm glad that homicide is illegal. It's good for our world that homicide is illegal. But that doesn't mean you stand innocent before a righteous God. You're guilty of something. You ever deceive somebody? Ever been full of murderous hate in your heart towards somebody else? Ever been malicious in your treatment of another person? Malicious towards your parents, malicious towards your kids, malicious towards that stranger in the road that cut you off and you were filled with rage towards that person? Confess it to your small group this week. <laughs> they are gossipers, Paul says, verse 29. Anybody ever gossiped another person? Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, Boastful, Paul just lays it on thick here. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. <laughs> it's amazing to me, disobedience to parents is in this list of evil sins, right next to God-haters and inventors of evil. <laughs> Which is just a, remember, just a reminder, kids out there, that God's serious about obedience to your parents, and it's also a reminder that you need Jesus. 
just like we need Jesus. I can't tell you how many times we've had kids get baptized here, and, and what's the sin typically they, they talk about in terms of knowing that they were sinned? It's their parents, disobedience, sibling rivalries, anger. I mean, my little boy, my sweet little innocent boy, yes, he needs Jesus. Look at verse 31. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. One Bible trans, translation translates verse 31 this way. No brains, no honor, no love, no pity. These four words in verse 31, they're, they're actually good words that have a, what's called an alpha privative. I talked about this last week in Greek, and it turns them negative. So instead of sunatos in Greek, wise, you have asunatos, foolish. So instead of stergo, means showing love, you have astorgas, meaning loveless or heartless. Instead of eliemon, merciful, you have aneliemon, merciless or ruthless. Anybody ever been guilty of these sins? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I have, I need a savior. You have too. I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, but I know you've committed some of these sins. You need a savior. C.S. Lewis said this once. This is one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis. He said, a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. How can we be neither? Here's how we're neither. And I know Lewis would agree with this. We are neither by grace. We are saved by grace. Charles Simeon says this. He says, alas, alas. I love how old preachers preach. I wish I could say that. Maybe I will. Alas, Harvest Decatur. If we take a survey of our own spirit and conduct through life, we shall find that there has been but little difference between us and the heathens. Does that hurt your feelings? Does that hurt your feelings? Are you offended by, I'm offended by that. If you're offended by that, you don't know the gospel. You don't know your desperate need for a savior is just like the quote unquote heathen. We all need grace. I, I mean, I could say a lot more about these sins. There's 21 of them, not, in, not including homosexuality. 21 other sins there. And I could teach extensively on all of them and show how it's infiltrated our society and even worse than that, infiltrated, uh, infiltrated all of our hearts and corrupted us. But I think the gist of Paul's argument here is bigger than that. His argument is that human society has rejected God and it's messed up. Human society is messed up. Here's the good news. Your messed upness is what qualifies you for a savior. You gotta know that, you gotta embrace that. If you don't acknowledge your own sinfulness, how can you be saved? If you ignore your sinfulness, how can you be saved? It's only those who acknowledge their sinfulness that can be saved. And Paul is building a case here that we as a society are utterly sinful and utterly in need of a savior. And by the way, that includes Paul. Let me, let me show you something. Even though Paul wasn't a Gentile, he's still guilty, like the Gentiles, of the sin that he lists here. And I'll give you some proof of this. But look at verse 30 with me. There's a little word there that you probably just kind of pass by quickly. Do you see that word insolent there? If you have an ESV Bible, that's how it's translated, insolent. The Greek word there is hubristes, uh, hubristes. It's a, it's a rare word in the New Testament. We get our English word hubris from this word, hubristes. And it's, it's a word that means arrogance, insulter. It even intimates violence. It's actually used in one other place in the New Testament. And it's here in 1 Timothy 1.13. You can read this on the screen. And, and Paul is talking here testimonially about how he came to Christ and his need for Christ. And Paul says, I once was a blasphemer. He says, I once was a persecutor and insolent opponent. You see that there? Hubristes. That's the same word. That's the same word that he condemns in Romans 1. 
But what does Paul say? But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, why do I point that out to you? Why is that significant? Paul is guilty of the same list of sins that he condemns in Romans 1. He's guilty before God too. That's amazing. That's amazing that he, he has the same sin here that he's condemning. Paul, as a Jew, was guilty of the same things that condemns Gentiles. Paul's in need of the same grace that you and I are as Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? You know, people come to the book of Romans and they think to themselves, oh, Paul, you know, he was so hateful. He was so holier than thou, condemning homosexuality and condemning Gentiles and condemning the sin of other people. No, 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 listen, listen, listen. Paul needed a savior too. Paul's argument here is gracious towards us. What, what would be the better thing to say that we don't need a savior? Is that better to be condemned for eternity in hell? Paul is gracious in telling us these things so we will turn to Jesus Christ as payment for our sin. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is tell people the truth. That's the most loving, that's the most graceful thing that you can do. And Paul does it right here for us. And he's guilty before God just like us and in need of a Savior. I'll talk more about grace and how we walk in that grace in a second. Let me just show you one last manifestation of human depravity. When human sinfulness gets bad, and I mean, I mean really bad, it goes beyond just the committing of sin. It goes to the condoning of sin. And that's what we see in verse 32. Go ahead and write this down as number three. I'm calling this the endorsement of evil. Paul says when things spiral out of control, when humanity paddles forward towards its own demise, one of the telltale signs of that self-destruction is the endorsement of evil. Because verse 32, Paul says, though they know God's righteous decree, they knew that they knew that they knew that they knew it. They pretended like they didn't know it. They tried to forget it. They tried to suppress it. But, but it's written on their hearts. They know it. They knew homosexuality was wrong. They knew malice, insolence, and covetousness were wrong. We know that. We are sinners before a holy God. Though they knew God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you see that? Don't be afraid of the person that does evil, Harvest Decatur. You know who the really scary people are? The ones that endorse evil. The ones that condone evil. The ones that promote evil. And, you know, when I read this verse, <laughs> that's 2019 America today. Not only do we practice bad things, but we give approval to bad things. We make sin acceptable. We make it preferable even to a life of holiness. In the words of Isaiah, we call evil good and we call good evil. Stuart Briscoe, he says this, he says it this way. He says, he says, instead of acting as guardian of each other's soul, people tend to function as encouragers of each other's destruction. Where mourning might be expected, rejoicing is to be seen. Instead of wholesome disapproval of sin, there's a wholesale approval of unrighteousness. The ancient commentator Ambrosiaster, he commented on this verse in the fourth century. And I want you to hear this, church. This is, this is 1,600-year-old wisdom for you. Okay? He says this. He says, those who do such things but prevent others are not so bad because they realize that these things are evil and do not justify them. He says, but the worst people are those who do these things and approve of others doing them as well. Not fearing God, but desiring the increase of evil. Don't fear the people who just do evil, Harvest Decatur. Fear the people that condone evil, that promote evil, that call evil good, those who try to legalize and normalize evil. That's the real scary stuff in our world. Because when you do that kind of thing in a community, in a society, you, there's this kind of corporate psychosis that just falls on the entire community. And that's when I look at history, that's what I see in the 1940s in Germany. 
That's what I see in communist Russia throughout the 20th century. Human beings started treating other human beings like animals and exterminating them in mass. Men and women who were made in the image of God just get killed, just get put to death, and nobody even thinks about it as something bad or something evil. We call something good evil and something evil good. The, the whole Nazi term for this, you know, these, the, all of these individuals made in the image of God that were being exterminated. The Nazi term for this was life unworthy of life. This was life unworthy of life. Lebens und Lebens. That's the motto that the Nazis used, exterminating millions of people. And to that you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, that's terrifying. Thank you. What am I supposed to do about that? I can't control the evil in this world. I can't stop the evil that our country is doing right now. What should I do? What should I do? Here's what you do. Start here, okay? You get saved. Did you, did you check that box yet? You give your life over to Jesus. You, you admit your own evil and your own need for Christ. Have you done that yet? So I've done it, Pastor Tony. I've done it. Good. All right. Here's what you do next. You put to death the deeds of your flesh. You fight the evil that's inside of you first. You do as Paul says elsewhere. You put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Romans 1 says it's here. It's already come. And then Paul says in Colossians here that it's still coming. There's still judgment to come. In these, you too once walked, Paul says. You used to be like this. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Amen, church. Are you putting to death the deeds of your flesh? Are you chasing Jesus? It's not just Paul. Look at what Peter says. He says, for the time is past. Suffices for what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Your time of all that is over, says Peter. You're done with that, Christian. Are y'all with me? Are y'all hearing that? Are y'all with Peter and Paul and what he's saying here? So let's get really practical here. First, you get saved. The Holy Spirit comes inside of you, starts to produce the fruit of the Spirit, put to death those evil things inside of you. Second thing is you put to death the deeds of your flesh. And, and you don't, by the way, you don't have to do that alone. You can leverage the strength of the church. You can leverage the men and women in this room to help you do that. That's the beauty of the church. And, and let me give you one more thing. If I can just add to what, Paul and Peter are saying here, you get saved, you put to death what is earthly within you, and then you get courageous in this world that is chasing hard after evil. And you stand up for the truth. Are y'all with me? I'm tired of Christians acquiescing to the things of this world and just letting evil just perpetuate here. Be bold. Be courageous in this world. Stand up for what's right. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when, when, when Germans were killing people, he had the, the courage to stand up and lose his life for what he believed in. He wasn't the only German who died in the 1940s because of their opposition to Nazism. Do we have that kind of courage or not? Are we those kind of people or not? I heard... John Stone Street say the other day that Christians need to develop a theology of getting fired. Christians need to develop a theology of getting fired. We need to be ready for opposition that's coming our way and we need to understand that there are worse things in this world than getting fired for refusing to perform an abortion, for refusing to perform a sex change operation, for refusing to bake a cake or put together a flower arrangement for a same-sex wedding ceremony. I hope you're ready for this, church. I hope you're preparing your kids for this, to be courageous in this world that is acquiescing to evil. 
review. Get saved, put to death the things of your heart, the sins, the flesh, and be courageous. Be bold for the truth. Be bold for Jesus. I'll close with this. I know I'm over time here. Bear with me just a little longer. I want you all to hear this. Actually, worship team, why don't you all go ahead and come up and then we can go right into singing and worship as soon as I'm done here. Here's an ex- excerpt from Kent Hughes' book on Romans. Hughes said he sat down once and he wrote a positive counterpart to Romans 1, 26 through 32. And it went like this. I love this. This can be a prayer for us as a church. He said, for this reason, God gave them up to pure and wholesome lives. Lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations, so that all received in their own persons the due reward of their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them up to a sound mind to do those things which are proper being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindliness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful. And as they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life, they do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise. I want to be like that. Here's the last word from Charles Simeon. Simeon says, let our trust in Christ be simple. Our fellowship with him intimate. Our confidence in him assured. Our expectation from him large, our devotion to him ardent, our obedience uniform, our surrender of ourselves to him entire and unreserved. By the way, Charles, same man, that guy right there, he lived his entire life as a single man, lived and died as a single man, never married. And he says, let us live for him and walk worthy of him so that he may be glorified, yea, and be magnified in us also, both in life and death. Amen.